This I Work For Him podcast is brought to you in part by Rosedale Communications, offering author-centric literary consulting, writing, and editing services to help you capture your voice, craft your message, edit your content, and publish your completed manuscript for business or ministry online at craftingyourmessage.com. Hey there, it's producer Michael Miracle here. Thanks for listening to the I Work For Him podcast. We are your on-air resource as a workplace believer. And check out our website for tons more I Work For Him resources. We've got blogs and podcasts and reading material and all sorts of fun stuff there. Plus, a link to listen to the live show several times a day. Yep, head to the website. That's IWorkForHim.com. IWorkTheNumberForHim.com. And the listen tab's up there on the top left. Click that, then click the live link, and you can listen to us live every weekday. That's IWorkForHim.com. I work the number four him.com. And now let's go ahead and kick off what we all came here for, hearing more about connecting what we learn on Sunday with what we do in our nine to five. This is the I Work For Him podcast. Thanks for tuning into I Work For Him this afternoon as we've got an incredible conversation set in motion for you today. But I want to make sure I just take a break for a minute before we go to the conversation to invite you to go out to iworkforhim.com. That's iwork4him.com. And let us know that you're listening. Connect with us on the I Work For Him Nation. Make that commitment to impacting your workplace through prayer. Call us on the I Work For Him listener line, 866-713-9675, and let us know how I Work For Him is impacting you. We've been getting lots and lots and lots of phone calls on that line. We love hearing from you, and there'll be days when you'll be hearing some of those testimonials. We love knowing that the Lord is using this show to encourage you to look at your workplace like a mission field. And in that mission field, you and me... We may be the only Jesus our coworkers, our employees may ever meet. The job that you hold, the work that you do, the people that you work with, none of that is by chance. The people that you work with, they need to meet Jesus. And you may be their only chance. You know, each one of us woke up this morning hoping and praying that our life would make a difference today. We've been given so much. Life is undoubtedly such a gift, and our relationships are so much more of a gift. Most of us have jobs. Most of us have families. Where do you wield your influence? Is it at work, at church, in your home? How do we take our level of influence and turn it into extraordinary influence? How do we become great leaders and bring out the best in others? Well, Dr. Tim Irwin joins us today as we talk about his brand new book, Extraordinary Influence, How Great Leaders Bring Out the Best in Others. Dr. Tim Irwin, welcome to I Work For Him. Hey, Jim, it's great to be with you, and thanks for that excellent introduction. Well, I really enjoyed your book, and and what I like is the challenge. It's a book that, as you open it up, it's got a challenge from one end to the other. And and I liked it because every one of us – well, let me just ask this question before I go into all my regular line of questioning. When you think of the word leader, you say how great leaders bring out the best in others. Who do you describe as a leader? I think leaders are people who have influence. In many cases, it's for good, sometimes not good. But I think leaders have a disproportionate sense of influence. In other words, they step into this role or seize the role in some fashion and attempt to influence others. I love that. And, and so, so many people think, well, I'm not a leader. I'm not a leader. I don't, I'm not a boss. I'm not a manager. I'm not a supervisor. I don't own anything. I'm not in charge. But yet... All of us have influence over other people. All right, let's step back for a minute. I always do this with every first-time guest on I Work For Him. Talk to us, Dr. Tim Irwin. How did you become a follower of Jesus? 
Jim, I'm not one of those people who can point to a very specific point in time when I came to faith, but over time, particularly in my late teens and early 20s, I became very convinced of the truth of the gospel. I was influenced by close friends who took me to Christian meetings where I heard the gospel, and over time, I knew that I believed and came to faith. So how has that faith grown as you have, have you matured as a business leader, as an author, as a father, as a husband, how have you seen God influence how you look at your work? Well, I I feel that God has uh, blessed me in so many unbelievable ways, a great wife, uh, two great sons, an opportunity to work and I've been blessed over and over again. I've also grown through adversity. I mean, I think that's—we'll uh, talk about that later when we talk about children, but but I think adversity is often when we come to really know Christ in the most intimate way. I love that. We'll talk about adversity later when we talk about children. <laughs> isn't exactly. That, isn't it? Exactly. God gives us children to complete the humiliation of ourselves. That's what it is. Uh, I mean, you know, people go like, so, it's so funny because families, that, couples that don't have kids, they they still have some semblance of mm, selfishness within their marriage even. But when you have kids, that's all blown apart because you, it, it just completes the selfless training because you can't raise children and not be selfless. All right. But you and Anne, your bride, how many years have you guys been married? As of May 22nd, 42 years. Cool. Congratulations. Thank that's you. I like awesome. to tell people we married in junior high. Yeah. <laughs> well, Okay. I mean, I don't know which part of the country you're from, but in some parts back then, that was legal. All right. And you've got two boys, William and Jim, and you write about them a lot in the book, and I like that. I love books that have the, the, the author gets a little transparent. How would William and Jim, how would they describe extraordinary leaders based on growing up in your home? Well, they know, I think, above all, that I care deeply for them and for their personal growth and development. And we made lots of sacrifices and spent lots of time with them uh, trying to help them grow. Uh, I use an illustration in the book uh, about the space shuttle, and Ann and I told them from very early age that we were like the two solid rocket boosters on the side of the space shuttle. Now, some people today don't even remember the space shuttle, but it was the main vehicle for getting into space. And these two solid rocket boosters would lift the space shuttle up to the edge of orbit, and then they would drop off and parachute into the ocean. And so we told our sons that we were going to get them into as high an orbit as possible. And then the, we would drop away, and the onboard engine would have to take over. We, we let them know early on that they, at some point, would become fully responsible for themselves. So, again, I have a great wife, and we worked very hard to do all that we could spiritually, academically, emotionally, socially, uh, athletically. We did everything we could to help them achieve that high orbit. So, you know, being developing leaders and you write about extraordinary influence, the leader, really what every leader has to give, but not every leader does. Where did you gain your appreciation for developing great leaders? Where did that come in into your life? Well, I have certainly had a lot of experience running companies myself, but as a consultant for over 30 years, I've also had a chance to observe. I've I've interviewed or had interactions with over 10,000 leaders, 
And so I've seen a lot of leaders that were extraordinarily effective at leading their organizations, leading people. I've also seen some that were catastrophic failures. And so as I've written about them and understood them, I've realized how important it is to develop the inner person of the leader. And we'll talk about that some more, I suspect. But um, I think leadership makes the difference. Great leadership has a tremendous difference on the outcomes of an organization. And so I feel like we have to develop people from their earliest days in an organization to prepare for those roles. And and every organization needs a phenomenal, selfless leader at the top. Yet in the last 50 years, and really in the last 100 plus years, 120, 130 years of the Industrial Revolution, that, that has not been a focus developing leaders that serve those that they lead. Where did, I mean, where did you get this idea of this inspiration for writing the book, Extraordinary Influence? Well, again, I think great leadership changes everything. And in the organizations where a great leader stepped in and Leaders have different styles, different approaches, but when a great leader who cares about the people in the organization steps in, uh, it makes a tremendous difference. One of the things that I firmly believe, almost above all other principles in an organization, is that the people in the organization will determine whether or not that company succeeds, but it's the leader who equips those people and prepares those people, inspires those people to give their best. And so that's where the book came from. I found that great leaders were able to to bring out the best in others. I think that's what we all really want to do. We want to have that kind of influence. We want to bring out the best. And so whether you're a corporate leader, uh, a religious leader, a coach, a teacher, um, a military leader, we it's to our great benefit to bring out the capabilities. Uh, in this field. We've all known coaches who see players and they think that player is so gifted, so talented, has so much natural ability, but they're not using it. And so the challenge of any of us is to reach into that person's life and bring out that best. Your influence, my influence, God has given us the ability to have unusually extraordinary influence over the people that we work alongside each and every day. Whether we're the boss or whether we're not the boss, we have influence over others. And how do we use that influence? We're talking today with Dr. Tim Irwin, New York Times best-selling author, and his book, Extraordinary Influence, How Great Leaders Bring Out the Best in Others. Tim, right before the break, I started asking a question and I stopped because I knew we were close to the break. I really wanted to hear How did this all start? Who was the great leader in your life that you said, wow, I want to be like that guy in the future? Jim, I've had so many people who've made an incredible difference in my life going back to high school. I mean, really important teachers who began to help bring out the best in me. Uh, I've had people that I worked for. I remember my first boss, Mr. Randolph. He helped me to learn that I could influence people and their buying choices. I mean, I could learn to sell. Uh, Many people along the way. I've also had the opportunity and the privilege, if you will, to work with many great leaders very closely. Uh, People like Steve Reinemann of PepsiCo, Mike Ducker of FedEx, uh, Mac McQuiston of the CEO Forum, people who were naturally gifted. And watching these people and the tremendous effectiveness that they displayed really helped me grow as a leader. Yeah, but when we're we're younger, there are people that make an impact. You know, like I got an eighth grade science teacher. 
and Mr. Ishi, and I've written him a letter. I finally found him. I found him like, I don't know, 30 years after I got out of eighth grade. And I, and I wrote him a note and I said, just so you know, one thing you said stuck with me all of my life. He was, it was a minute. I have no idea what it had to do with. I think it had to do with registering for classes in middle school. And he said, Hey, just always, when you get to the front of the line, always have an alternative. Don't just have one choice, have an alternative so that you don't get sent to the back of the line. And I, and I remembered it. You've had teacher, you had teachers like that who said, Tim, you could do better. But you had a boss when you were working in a cafeteria that spoke truth in your. Tell us that story. Well, and that's another example of a person who had a great impact in my life. When I was in college, I was a dishwasher. And I would uh, go to work, and of course I'd go to class, but I... Um, <laughs> Which did you do? You did? Come on. <laughs> your mom and dad aren't listening to the show today. Did you really go to class or are you just <laughs> well, saying it? Enough to graduate. Let's put it that way. But uh, I, so to, I worked in this cafeteria and I, would, I was back in the kitchen and the people would bring their trays and set them on this pass-through window and I would scrape the plates into some buckets. Now we had some local farmers and they would come by every afternoon and pick up the food in these buckets and take it and they would slop their hogs. I sometimes use the expression a pig's breakfast and if you've ever slopped hogs you, you know what I'm talking about. But these guys would come by and so uh, every Wednesday uh, we would serve ham. The menu was very predictable in this cafeteria. And so I was scraping all this food into these buckets, and I was thinking, I'm going to give these farmers a hard time. I was I was one of these sort of allegedly clever college students, and I was going to kind of give them a hard time and make fun of them. So they came in, and I feigned this moral outrage. I said, guys, I said, have you ever thought about the fact that you're feeding, that you're making these pigs cannibals? I mean, you're for all you know, you could be feeding them their best friend from last month. And I just went on and was trying to make fun at their expense. And the other students were laughing and carrying on as well. But these guys, you could tell they were a little bit unsettled. And what I didn't know is they left the cafeteria with their buckets to go slop their hogs. They ran into the, the guy that owned the cafeteria and ran it, and they told him what had happened. So he invited me to stop by his office after your I boss. got off that afternoon. <laughs> your, your boss the, invited the you. owner. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we sat down, and he said, Tim, he says, listen, I know you're not going to be washing dishes for the rest of your life, but I think this may be one of the most important jobs you've ever had. And he went on to describe for me how important these farmers were because they – disposed of a tremendous tonnage of waste for this cafeteria. I mean, they were part of the supply chain that actually got the waste out the door. And he talked about how honorable these men were and how they often helped bring uh, products in that we served in the restaurant and uh, and so on. And he said, Tim, he says, I know you believe in the mission of what we're doing. And so I think you need to go back and apologize to those guys because they felt very uncomfortable. They thought you were really upset. I know you were kidding, but they thought you were upset. Well, by then, you could have scraped me off the floor uh, with embarrassment and, and so on. But the next day, I went up to these guys and I said, hey, I'm really sorry. I apologize for the things I've said. And the farmer said, are you kidding? He says, pigs can't be cannibals. They're porcupines." So they just gave it back to me, and we became very good friends that day. But I learned from Mr. Benson how important it was to make sure that my actions were in alignment with the mission and that I needed to honor other people and bring out the best in them. And that was one of the most important leadership lessons I've ever learned. 
It's a great, great story. Did you ever have the opportunity to go back to Mr. Benson after you got your doctorate and thank him? Did you ever get a chance to go? I didn't. He was pretty old uh, at that point, and I suspect this was a good many years later when I finally finished, and I did not get back over to college. But if I could, I would I would certainly I would send him this book and just tell him that uh, he's, he's the source of a chapter. And that probably inspires me to make a, a little more of an effort to go look for him. Mm. It's just one of those. It's one of those stories. I've got people like that in my own life where they said things, and you know they might have said a million words, but it was like five, five words that smacked you upside the head, going, hmm, "Wow." Well, he could have. He could have basically ringed me out and criticized me and uh, sent me packing. But he saw a developmental opportunity, and he he expressed value. He he affirmed me in a sense, but he also told me that my behavior was not. Congruent. It was out of line with the mission of what we were trying to do in that cafeteria. As we're talking today with Dr. Tim Irwin about his book, Extraordinary Influence, you just said, Tim, developmental opportunity. <laughs> That's one of those words. You were, you were ripe for a butt kicking. But what he said, he saw that your behavior wasn't consistent. Your, your behavior towards the pig farmers wasn't consistent with the attitude you displayed in your job. He's like, well, who was this guy? There's, I see something different in Tim. And he, instead of giving you the butt kicking and taking your apron and saying, see ya, and your, your, probably your rubber gloves, he said, no, I want to build into this kid. That is what makes an extraordinary leader. That's a leader exerting extraordinary influence, isn't it? No question. And that's what he did for me that day. And he took the took advantage of that learning opportunity, that growth moment, that teachable moment, if you will, and helped me to mature and grow and learn something about valuing people. All right, let's dig a little deeper. I, I love that story, and there's so many great stories in, in your book. But uh, that one, I, 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 I lived it. I watched it because I was somewhat sarcastic. You know, when I was younger and I often put foot in mouth and still suffer at times from foot and mouth disease. Now I get to do it in front of thousands of people every day. So I understood that. Now you get paid to do it. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. That's right. All right. So throughout your book, I, I love this because you made this book available for any audience. But throughout the book, you quote scripture. But you don't really quote scripture. What you do is you say, hey, an ancient king once said, or it was written in an ancient book. And then at the back, I mean, you get your bibliography and you, and you make the references. But why did you make obscure the references to the Bible in your book? Anybody that reads my book who's a person of faith will see the biblical foundations throughout all of my books. And they're very clear that my ideas are based on biblical truth. But I spend 95% of my world in the corporate environment, and I don't want to create artificial barriers to people learning those truths. And so, uh, as you know, we live in this very quirky world today where they've driven a wedge between faith and work and, and so on. And so I do that intentionally. But I have people come up to me when I speak at corporate meetings all the time, and they say, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I say, absolutely. So I think it's very transparent to the people who matter. But it's a way of not creating this artificial barrier for people to really learn and grow uh, who are strictly in the marketplace. Now, when you are dealing with those corporate leaders who don't recognize the, the truth of God's word and don't see Jesus as the solution to every problem that they're seeking, how often do you get a chance to bridge that in the conversation when people are going, hey, 
Where did this stuff come from? Well, it's not that often, but um, because people are driven in the corporate world. They're driven for anything they can do to gain competitive advantage. They're seeking to take advantage of marketplace opportunities and build their companies and grow their leaders. So they are pragmatic. I've never, it's pure pragmatism. And so they are just seeking to build in ideas that work and they help their leaders. You know, we were talking earlier about how people influence. Position power is not all it's cracked up to be. A lot of people think that the CEO or some of the VP or whatever, uh, they're very powerful. But basically, I've discovered, and I hear CEOs say this all the time, that position power is not what it's cracked up to be. Everybody has to use influence, regardless of whether you're the CEO. You may think that that CEO is all-powerful, but he or she is really not. And so they're looking for anything they can do to increase and make more effective their ability to lead and influence the people in their organization. Because ultimately, they cannot force people to do anything. What they can do, though, is inspire people to follow them. Talk to, you, you, you talk throughout the book about a person's core. You know, I, I've, I've heard it described many other ways. What to you is a person's core? The writers of the Bible did not make a distinction between heart and mind. It was a unified concept. And so what I talk about is that leaders have three faces. They have an outward-facing style. In other words, we all have a persona, as Carl Jung said. We, we wear a suit, if you will, that expresses much about who we are. The second phase of the leader is our conduct. It's, it's what we do. It's how we, it's our competencies, how we perform, if you will. And that's important. Leaders have to build teams. They have to set strategies. They have to hire great people. So these are all important things that a leader must do. But I feel that leadership is ultimately about the core. And we all know that there's a person inside because we talk to them a lot. I say to groups all the time, do you ever talk to yourself? And people are nervous, but they say, yeah. And listen, the other thing is if, if we are quiet, we can actually hear that person talking to us. There's a constant dialogue. In fact, scientists tell us that we speak more words to ourselves than we speak to others. And that person inside us is the core. That's who I'm talking about. There's a person living inside us that thinks, feels, creates opinions, determines beliefs, and so on. And that is where great leadership originates, is from a sound core. And I found the, the, the opposite of that is true, Jim. I've studied many derail leaders. In fact, I wrote a book on it several years ago. What kind, called, what kind of leaders? Derailed. These are leaders that were ultimately fired by their boards and had cataclysmic failures. Okay. And so they derailed uh, in their careers. These are people who compromised their core. I found the one common characteristic among all the people that derailed was that they had compromised that core. And that uh, they believed the wrong things. Tiger Woods, for example, mm -hmm. he's trying to make a comeback, which is great. But he said, I told myself I didn't have to follow the normal rules. I told myself I was entitled. See, he was having that conversation with himself, and he implanted certain beliefs inside his core. And what I've come to believe very strongly is that we act on those beliefs. If we tell ourselves we don't have to follow the normal rules, then we're going to act in accordance with that. Oh, and the catastrophic collateral damage when you are around a person who doesn't follow their core and they derail, it is devastating. Well, you asked me earlier who are the great leaders I've seen. 
seen, and the great leaders I've seen are the ones who have an intact core. Well, but what about the ones that are great leaders? They get derailed, or they they go off. They just go out, you know, they're they're heading the right way, and all of a sudden they they go off the straight and narrow. But yet they have the ability to to admit that they were wrong, say they were sorry, ask for forgiveness, and and try to get back going again. To me, that makes an even better leader because there isn't a single leader out there except for Jesus Christ who has led and not screwed up. Well, that's exactly right. But some people's screw-ups are more catastrophic than others. <laughs> and so the point is that some people absolutely can course-correct as things are happening. In fact, that was one of the characteristics of people who paid attention to those early warning signals. By the way, a common denominator among leaders at derail is they lack self-awareness. They don't pay attention to all those motives stirring beneath the surface. And so they begin to sort of take over them. But when we become self-aware, we catch ourselves, uh, then that's a good thing. Some people go too far down that track of derailment. There are five stages of derailment. If they get down to stage four, they're pretty much gone. And they sometimes can stage a comeback, but it's rarely in the same organization where the derailment occurred. You had one great teacher I heard many times say, when you're going downhill, you you, you pick up speed. You do, and that's what exactly what happens to these people. They become arrogant, and arrogance is the mother of all derailers. And what do we know from Scripture about arrogance? It precedes a fall. And so when arrogance becomes a ruling, dominant force in our lives, we're in trouble. It's the mother of all derailers. We're talking with Dr. Tim Irwin today about his book, Extraordinary Influence, How Great Leaders Bring Out the Best in Others. And you'll understand why I asked the question about what's the core, because of this next question. Tim, you use the phrase a ton throughout the book. I love I loved this word. Words of life. First of all, what are words of life? Let me answer that question in two ways. First is to say that one of the things that we have now learned through brain science are the positive benefits of affirmation. The brain lights up in some of the most profound ways through affirmation. And sometimes that affirmation can be superficial, like, hey, you know, you look nice today, or, um, you know, you did a good job at leading that meeting. But the most profound affirmation is when we affirm the character of that other person. And so words of life are words that go straight into our core. And so we know that affirmation is very powerful. We now know categorically that affirmation provides tremendous changes to the brain. It sets off all kinds of positive chemical reactions that are highly desirable. But it's not a pat on the back, and that's the key thing. It's not a pat on the back. It's that deep affirmation that goes into our core. All right, we got to give an example because it's it's a vivid image in my mind because I read your book. But people listening haven't read your book yet. Let's draw a picture of what it means to, I mean, because really you're talking about feeding the soul. I know you call it the core. I'm going to say soul because I think they're, you know, they're, they're, they're hand in hand. These words of life. Give me an example of somebody who spoke words of life into you. Well, words of life are words that affirm our character. They often have to do with courage. They have to do with integrity. They have to do with resilience. Uh, the things that are basically qualities of character. And so I've had people tell me before, and this happened not long ago, they said, wow, 
you showed tremendous courage because you spoke truth to power. Now, there's this CEO everybody's afraid of, and it was obvious that you talked to him directly and told him uh, in some ways where he was off track. And so that took a lot of courage to be able to do that. And that's often often what words of life are about is when we speak. I remember I was talking to a CEO recently, and I said, you know, you have gone through an incredible ordeal leading this company into the future because he had to drop a lot of legacy systems and behaviors, and the company was really struggling, and he is doing a major turnaround. And I said, you've shown unbelievable resilience. And when you speak words of life into someone's core, it's almost like they go temporarily into kind of a trance. I mean, it's like something is going on inside us in our brains. And I believe that's what's happening is that deep affirmation uh, changes us. It transforms us. If you want to have extraordinary influence on your child or on a student or on somebody that you lead in your organization, speak words of life into their core, and that will change them. And this change, I mean, and it's no different than the words, Dr. Tim Irwin, that were spoken into you by your, the, the cafeteria manager, the owner. I mean, he spoke truth into you that, that you, that have impacted you now some 30 plus years later. Now, we'll talk about this a little more, I suspect, but one of the things that I did for this book was I interviewed 35 CEOs who were highly successful, and there was a common theme through all their interviews, and that was that they could hear just about anything from a boss, from their own bosses, if, because they knew that their bosses were for them. And that's one of the things, you know, we talk about affirmation and so on, but we can also say things like Mr. Benson did to me that are areas where we screwed up. But I knew that he was for me. I knew that he really cared about my becoming a better person, becoming more effective in what I did. And so we can hear just about anything as long as we know that person's really for us. Well, but that, that's, that's how we gain access to someone's core. Well, wasn't what Mr. Benson did for you, wasn't that like constructive criticism? Well, as you know, because you've read the book, I hate that term. I think it's a classic <laughs> oxymoron. And I'm, I'm proposing, in fact, all of your listeners can join me in my worldwide crusade to ban the term constructive criticism. The reason is criticism in and of itself is not constructive. We now know that the brain, when it senses, it, it detects a threat, it goes into hyper-defense mode and shuts down the parts of the brain that are responsible for creativity, problem-solving, innovation, and so on. And so I think we have to learn ways to bypass that part of the brain that goes on to hyper-defense. We have a negativity bias in our brains. We're constantly scanning the environment to see if there's something that's going to threaten us. And when we do that, we just shut down many parts of the brain that we really need. And, and I love that. I, did, I was baiting you because I, I love that. I mean, you you beat the living daylights out of. I hate the words constructive constructive criticism. I hate them. I don't like those. You didn't say hate, but we're going to ban those words. And I love this. So I had to bait you with that. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> well, I do hate them. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. He said it himself, Doctor Tim Irwin, who wrote the book Extraordinary Influence. All right, for those people that are going, people don't get to hear the whole show. A lot of times, people are driving; they only get to hear part of it. How do you gain extraordinary influence in someone's life in order? to bring out the best in them? How do you do it in 30 seconds or less? Well, what I say in the book 
over and over again is that we have to give words of life to people. If you want to change somebody, you've got to speak words of life. It's got to be authentic. I give a number of conditions that have to apply uh, to someone when you speak words of life. But if you want to change your child, if you want to change your uh, coworker, somebody you lead, you have to speak words of life. And those words of life speak to the very core of the being, our minds, our souls. And, and, and really, it's, it's just so scriptural, just to speak love into people. And, and that's what I love about your book, Extraordinary Influence, How Great Leaders Bring Out the Best in Others by Dr. Tim Irwin. And you know, as well, if you're a regular listener of I Work Friend, we're always, we talk about leadership all the time because you and me, we all lead people, whether we're you know, managers or supervisors or owners or whatever, CEOs, we don't have to be those titles in order to have influence over people, in order to lead people. But how do we lead them? Does our faith in Jesus Christ impact how we lead people? Well, of course it should. And, but sometimes we don't know what that even looks like. And Dr. Tim Irwin's book, Extraordinary Influence, really helps us to understand some of that. And, and I love some of the basic concepts. But Tim, not but, but I just want to make sure I hit this. You, as leaders, we always want people to do the things they're capable of doing and actually just kind of rising up to their ability. And in order to be, we want to get people to do the things that are best for them and that will benefit the organization that they operate within. The old school says you browbeat or yell it out of people. What's the new school say about how to bring the best production attitude, create the most positive culture? What's that say? Well, you've already implied this in your your question, but the old school of management is harsh, it's dictatorial, it's directive, and I don't know many people that succeed with that kind of approach. If they succeed at all, it's very short term. And by the way, even the military is learning this. Even college football coaches, there's some great articles about how they feel the coaches that are having better winning records are more like teachers than yellers and screamers. But I think the way that we have to also recognize is sometimes people need contrary feedback. In other words, we're not always doing things the right way. And I've been talking a lot about affirmation and the importance and the benefits of the brain. But we have to get around that negativity bias. So I coined this term called alliance feedback. So if we have somebody, let's just take a child who's not studying enough. We can say to that child, honey, look, you've made it very clear that you want to go to name the school and study engineering. I think that's great. I think you'd be a fantastic engineer. I know you can do this. I also know that you've got to really do well in math and science in order to get into these kind of schools. And so I just want to encourage you to buckle down and study an hour longer every night in order to accomplish that goal. So what we're doing, we're aligning ourselves, our admonitions, with their aspirations. That's what alliance feedback is. And it's really important that we learn to do that because that's how we bypass the part of the brain called the amygdala, which has this negativity bias and is on hyper-defense mode all the time. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And so part of my, one of my thoughts was, okay, both your dad and my dad worked in environments that were toxic like that, they, they were, where they were yelled at in order to get better production. I mean, that's just the way that the, that the world was 60 or 70 years ago. That's the environment that, that our dads grew up in. Did your dad ever talk about how, how discouraged he was because he was treated that way? Or did your dad work in one of those unusual environments? Well, uh, 
both answers. He came out of the military. He was he was in the Army Air Corps and flew bombers over over uh, Europe in World War II, and so that was a pretty harsh environment. Uh, when he came out, he had the good fortune to work for Mr. C. E. Woolman, who was the founder of Delta Airlines, and I think Mr. Woolman had a, a higher understanding of how to lead people even back then in the 40s. But the importance is that that has been shown to be largely ineffective. It just you can get short-term gains, but there's nothing sustainable about it. It destroys and, people. I mean, it just destroys people when you do that. It destroys their core. Right. And our, our, I talk. We talked a lot about early in this broadcast about words of life. The problem is, in many of our corporate environments, are filled with words of death. Words of death diminish us. They bring us down. And so I think uh, we have to resolve. In other words, and a lot of people, just simple, just simple expressions like, well, i got to hold your feet to the fire. Well, do you know where that came from? You know where that expression came from? It was a torture method used in the Middle Ages to cause heretics to recant. But here we are in the, you know, uh, in the 21st century telling people, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire. Well, our corporate cultures are filled with words of death, and I don't think they buy as much. In Florida, we don't have to actually use fire. We just make people walk across the pavement in the summertime. Well, hey, that's that's a good alternative. That's right. It it causes the same amount of blistering. (laughs) All right. So how do we use this, our extraordinary influence to help underperformers, just like you mentioned kids, but the, the people that we work with, maybe the people we supervise, maybe the people who just have influence or how do we use our extraordinary influence to help those underperformers? I think one of the things we have to understand about a person is we have to take a little time to get to know them and say, help me understand your aspirations. What are you trying to accomplish in your life? What do you want to accomplish in our company? What do you want to accomplish on our team? And I think we, that gives us a basis for saying, well, look, I want to join you. I support you in those aspirations. Here are some things that I think uh, you can do which will make that more likely. You want to become a manager. Good for you. I think that's a great aspiration. I support you. In order to be a manager, you've got to learn to have good interpersonal relationships with people. Or you've got to learn to collaborate on a team. You've got to learn to be a team player. So those are just examples of things that you might say to an underperformer. I'm not saying all underperformers can be brought around. Some people just have so much baggage, and they're, they're really more of a problem person. They just bring toxic elements in their personality. And I say in the book, sometimes you have to help those people go work somewhere else. But <laughs> free, often, You have to free their future. Well, that's one way. That's one way to do it is to free their future to go work for somebody else. But underperformers often uh, are, are are needing to recognize their own capabilities and to be affirmed. Right. Very simple. Yeah, just a great book, and I'm not gonna. You know, I hate to mention another guy's book because your book is great. But Dr. Paul White, along with Gary Chapman, wrote that Five Languages of Appreciation in the Workplace, and it and it fits you guys. I think I mentioned this to you in an email. You guys need to connect because you guys together could write the world's bestseller on creating the best culture in an environment in a work environment. All right, so I want to just go go to this because I don't want I want this story to come out. FedEx figured this out. They figured out that beating people over the head. Didn't didn't work, and they came up with a new employee review system. Tell us about it. what happened to, to cause this. Well, number one, I think most people who work in organizations will recognize the truth of this: that what is the most hated event in the corporate corporate life? 
It's performance appraisal. The people who give the performance appraisal and the people who receive it hate it. It's just one of the worst things. It's done typically very clumsily. It's hated. Uh, it's not very effective. And so under the leadership of Mike Ducker, who happens to be the CEO of FedEx Freight, uh, decided to ask his company to reinvent their performance appraisal system. And so one of the problems of traditional performance appraisal is it's done once a year. For example, you know, even if you solved world hunger in January, by December, nobody remembers it. And so what it does is it increases the frequency and makes it more of a conversation along the way. Rather than me as a manager sitting in judgment on you in December for the last 12 months, it's us having a conversation. Nothing should be a surprise in December because we should have already talked about it many times. That's one of the so what FedEx did is they, like many other companies, by the way, a lot of companies are abandoning their old rating systems and are seeking to foster a more uh, important relationship among workers and their managers. I think that's really the word. Companies are figuring out that relationships between boss and employee, whatever that boss relationship is, is powerful, and that they need to be the relationships need to be built in, built up, because that really creates a way more affirming environment. As you talk about an extraordinary influence, but do you also mention you know some people with extraordinary influence sometimes it just goes to their head. And it destroys themselves. As you said, they derailed. How do you keep that from happening when you gain this extraordinary influence? Well, I think when people are effective at extraordinary influence, it's very much focused on other people. They begin to see their mission as one that, hey, as a leader, my job is to develop others. And it gets focused off self. And I think that's an important benefit of this. It's saying, hey, I get to I get to do this in such a way that really builds up other people. Mm. And I think it becomes less self-centered, if you will. I want to make sure we plug who you are, DrTimIrwin.com, DrTimIrwin.com. That's where people can go to get your book. But out there, they can also find out how you serve corporations all across the world. What, what is it that you can do on a daily basis? Well, what I do is work with leaders and often their teams. And so I've got many phone calls from leaders saying, hey, I'd like you to come in and uh, help us create a stronger team here, work with some of the people. I'm often also called to vet talent. In other words, we're thinking about hiring a vice president of marketing. Uh, Would you take a look at our candidate and see if you think this is a good fit? So those are some of the things. The thing I'm actually doing much more of today, though, is I'm writing and also giving speeches to corporations and to leadership groups. I spend a good bit of my time speaking on this very topic. And it's so powerful for us to understand it. All right. You can find Dr. Tim Irwin online, Dr. Tim Irwin, and that's with an I, I I-R-W-I-N, Irwin.com, Dr. Tim Irwin.com, Dr. Tim Irwin.com. Get a copy of his book, Extraordinary Influence, right there on his website. Dr. Tim Irwin, thank you so much for being on I Work for him this afternoon. It was a great conversation. I appreciate your transparency. We ran out of time, but I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. Jim, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, make sure you check him out online, DrTimIrwin.com. Get a copy of his book, Extraordinary Influence. You've been listening to I Work for him with your host, Jim Brangenberg. I'm a Christ follower. My workplace? It's my mission field, but ultimately, I work for him. 